Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by J.J. Cooper. Hello everybody. J.J., we're a couple weeks into the minor league season, almost a month into the major league season. It's exciting times, uh, lots going on all around the country at every level of baseball. But I want to start with a piece you wrote last week that talked about what the introduction of the major league baseball has meant to AAA. We've seen in recent years Baseball's been flying out of stadiums across the majors at a rate unseen almost in baseball history. Really, not almost, it has been unseen in Major League history. Now we've seen the Major League ball brought into AAA, and there's been a similar explosion of power as we've seen in the Major Leagues. And it's only April. Places like Reno, Albuquerque, Las Vegas that are going to be very hitter-friendly regardless of what baseball is being used. When the weather warms up in the summer, that's when the ball really flies. And what we've seen already is a huge jump that's probably only going to get larger as we move further into the year. Yeah, and again, this is not much of a surprise in many ways. You know, last year, went to the AAA championship game, wrote there about the fact that the baseball is going to be changing for 2019, and said at the time, like, you, anyone you talk to around AAA baseball expected that what you were going to see is that offensive number is going to go up. It's... I don't want to say it's basically, it's proven, but I will tell you that a lot of people, as you said, like who are in the game, know, they feel confident, I should say, that they know the major league ball is more lively than the minor league ball. How do we know this? One of the ways we know this is, is last year and in past years, if you're a major league player, a pitcher on rehab assignment to AAA, you could choose, you could use the major league ball. They would actually stop the game, bring in major league balls when you pitch, then they would switch it back to the minor league ball, then a major league ball when you pitch, then back to the minor league ball. And you had major league pitchers who would say, no, 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 I want to use the minor league ball, which from a development standpoint, from a I'm getting in my work to be ready for the major leagues makes no sense because the balls are different. Why wouldn't you want to be acclimated to your major league ball that you're going to be using in your next start of the majors? But the main reason was is because this ball doesn't travel as far as that other ball and I will have better results if I'm pitching with this ball. So we expected to see this. That said, I did not expect it would be this. I mean, this has been, as we sit here recording this on, I think it's Tuesday. It um, is. Tacoma has an 8.13 ERA. You know, that's, that's after 19 games. That's not, they had a bad, it's the first week of the season, they had a really bad outing. The majority of the PCL has an ERA above five right now. And again, that's in April. This is normally the time when the ERAs are on the lower end of the spectrum. San Antonio leads the PCL with a 3.94 ERA, which, again, as you just said, this is April. And I can't get over the fact that what we're talking about right now is double-A and triple-A. It's almost like they're two different games. Like. In double A right now, like you just said, like in the PCL, there's no team with an ERA below 3.94. In double A baseball, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten teams out of the 30 who have an ERA above 3.94. So the best PCL ERA is worse than 20 of the 30 teams in double A. Like you have you have three teams in AA who have an ERA of 2.6 or, or better. Like, again, the thing that just stands out is, is what we've done is we have taken this massive divide that was, we, we, we talk about in the office, like, which has been difficult from an evaluation standpoint. Jesse Winker playing with a minor league baseball. And again, I've had scouts tell me over the years, Jesse Winker's raw power is very solid. Seems put on shows and home run derbies, you know, in all-star games and things like that. But Jesse Winker, as a minor league baseball player, a lot of games in AAA, there were some wrist injuries involved in there. Like a lot of caveats here, I'm saying. I, I understand all the caveats. But he was a sub-400 slugging percentage guy who had really good plate discipline. Jesse Winker goes to the big leagues, and admittedly, Great American Ballpark is a great place to hit. All of a sudden, he's a, his power is at a whole different level. Well, one of, one of the main reasons of that the environment he is playing in is very different. Well, now what we've done is we've taken that massive gulf that was true where 
and I've had scouts tell me this, that, that, that guys who didn't have power, legit power in AAA, became power hitters in the major leagues. Well now, and this is probably better from a development standpoint, terrible for pitchers trying to get confidence, but from a development standpoint, you've taken that, and now that gulf is between AA and AAA. The thing I'll say for it, though, is, is for all this where we have to caveat to caveat to caveat, these guys having great starts in AAA, and it's like, well, yeah, he's hit a lot of homers. Everyone's hitting a lot of homers. It's the same ball they're going to use in the major leagues. I mean, you know, we've now at least brought that down to the minors where guys learn, oh, I can go oppo with this ball, and it will go out. I mean, what, I mean to you, what do you think, you know, like is the kind of, this, this baseball is not going away. They're not going to switch back to the minor league ball next year in AAA. They may bring the major league ball down to AA. You know, what do you think is kind of the long-term ramifications? I'm going to be mostly curious to see how this affects pitcher evaluations at the level, just because, like you mentioned, there are going to be guys who they give up a fly ball. We see this sometimes in the lower levels, you know, the Lancasters of the world and high desert before it moved, where if a guy was given, you know, the scout was just looking at the hard contact because the pitcher was going to give up a bunch of home runs. It was just fact of the matter. Even if they gave up a lazy fly ball, it was going to go out. The home run number wasn't going to look great. The ERA was going to be elevated. And I think now we're going to have to see that on kind of a mass scale, particularly in the PCL on the western half where you have all these ballparks. It's not one ballpark that has that. It's four, five, six. I'm just going to be very curious to see how pitcher evaluation changes, what is considered, I don't want to say acceptable is the right word, but just how evaluators and teams kind of look at everything in that regard. As for the hitter side, I can kind of see both sides of it. On the one hand, it can kind of encourage guys to maybe get into some bad habits at AAA that won't play in the major leagues, even though the major league ball is still flying out. You're still going to be facing better pitchers, and there's going to be certain things you can get away with in AAA you can't. So I don't really have any bold predictions because we're really in uncharted territory. There's about eight different ways this thing can go. But I think it is fascinating just how huge the bump has been, how quick it's happened. And again, I can't emphasize, all signs point to, this is just the start. It's going to be even larger three months from now once the weather warms up. The other thing I'll say from an evaluation standpoint, what this is really bad news for is the AAA control pitcher who's around the zone, who basically gets, again, the guy who doesn't have blow you away stuff, does not have swing and miss stuff, and is around the zone a lot, has good control, doesn't make a lot of mistakes, what we quote mistakes, but Tyler Danish is a guy like that to me. Like, you know, again, not overwhelming stuff, but poor Tyler pitching for Tacoma. He's made four starts. He's given up eight home runs in 13 innings. Like, that's, again, and the thing about it is, is what, again, it's, he's pitched in Albuquerque, he's pitched in El Paso. Those are good places, you know, for hitters. But, you know, Andrew Moore, who's at Durham, he was here, you know, we've seen Andrew Moore a lot, but Andrew Moore has given up eight home runs so far in, I think, four starts. Like, and again, playing in the eastern half where the ballparks, the elevation. Eastern half of the you know, IL. Right. I mean, I like, mean, this it's... is not exactly, I mean, Charlotte's a good, you know, shape. Charlotte has always been. But you don't have to deal with the elevation you do in the west in the western half of the PCL. There's no question. We're seeing that even at the less hitter-friendly parks, we're seeing this uptick. It goes beyond just the normal places. Right. But so what stands out to me, though, is, is guys like that are, especially guys like that who pitch in the western half of the PCL this year, some of those guys are going to have, I don't know another way, but like psyche crushing years. And again, you not that we're rooting against those, but the point is, is like, when you say, what does it do? Well, it's gonna be the, it's, it's gonna be a cruel teacher because it will teach you like a, any mistake that you make. And sometimes when you make the perfect pitch in the perfect situation and you fool the hitter, we're going to have situations. He's out front, he puts yeah. it in the air, and it just goes. Right. Yes. All those things are going to happen. But the thing about it is, is that that does mean with that, though, is, is, you know, again, Andrew Moore, you've seen Andrew Moore pitch. I've seen Andrew Moore pitch. I'm not saying he's a, you know, blow you away pitcher in any way. But at the same time, 14 innings right now, he has a 13.5 ERA pitching in Durham. You know. He's it, not really that bad. And, but the thing about it is, is, you're human. Like, oh, this wears you. on you. Now, the flip side of that is, is that you are going to have hitters who this, 
you, you, you pointed out one of the dangers of it, getting bad habits. It's absolutely true. The other thing that will happen, though, is you will have guys who their confidence that you get from, you know, I didn't even think I really got that one. And that one, you know, that one went to the wall or that one cleared the wall or whatever. Hitting, having confidence helps you as a hitter. Oh, absolutely. So much of hitting is mental. Really and, all of baseball, but hitting but, especially. So if you have a guy who hasn't really felt confident in his power before, like I can't get too big. If I do, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who, you know, try. some of these guys are going to all of a sudden discover that they're power hitters because, again, it's almost like they found, it's like they spent the offseason and they found a couple of extra miles of average exit velo because the baseball switch is essentially giving that to them. You know, and especially, again, let's take an example of, let's say that you were playing in the Eastern League last year, not Reading, but somewhere else. You're in Richmond, and then all of a sudden you're playing in, you know, like let's say the west side of the PCL. Right. You're in the Giants system, move to Sacramento, and even though Sacramento itself is but, not at elevation, the others that and you're playing, like, yes. I'm a much better hitter than I thought I was. Well, again, some guys, that's going to be the difference. That's going to make a difference for them because that confidence doesn't go away. Again, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Like, we've seen this in the past. You know, for one, one of the things we've seen is, is like literally teams time after time would end up in Lancaster and then they would purchase a franchise somewhere else in high A to avoid being in Lancaster. Well, why was that? Is because it's very difficult. What you just talked about, like we've always talked about, Lancaster has always been difficult to develop pitchers in Lancaster because it's one thing if you say this is a difficult environment, but you know what? If you make your pitches, you execute your game plan, you can succeed. There's been times at Lancaster over the years where you could make your pitches, you could execute your game plan, and it didn't matter if the wind was blowing out 35 miles an hour. Literally, it was they got the bat on the ball, and you were punished for it. And that's going to happen in AAA now. And I remember doing a story on this with Lance McCullers, actually, in 2017, and I wrote it before he made his first start in the World Series that year. Just talking with him, and Chris Tillman was another guy, they had ERAs over five in high A. McCullers in Lancaster, Tillman in high desert. And it really just came down to they just couldn't look at the ERA. You couldn't look at the home run numbers. You had to look at quality strikes. You had to look at the quality of contact being made because if you just tried to do it through traditional statistics, not that you ever really do stat line scouting, but just looking at the numbers, it wasn't going to tell you the real story. And I think we're going to start seeing that on a much larger scale here in AAA, particularly concentrated in the PCL on the western half of it, because you're going to have to. You already did to some degree with the places like Fresno and El Paso, but it's going to be even more so now. Well, the other thing I will say, though, is, is that, again, it's going to be more so there, but I will say it's going to be in the IL, too. Like, like and that's where it'll be new. That's where, like, again, Reno and Las Vegas have been unfair environments for pitchers for a long time. I mean, like, that's just been, like, you've, you've, you've known that. But, you know, we're seeing now where, again, we've seen, again, maybe it was an outlier, but we saw a Rochester-Lehigh Valley game that was 20-18 to 18 with 15 home runs. Like, that's that's a month of home like legitimately like that was the month of home runs in April for Rochester last year that was around that range like we saw that in one game and again like you the funny thing is is you scroll through night after night as I do and you look at the box scores like last night I think it was like 80% of the PCL games had a team score 10 runs it's, it's crazy. It really is. Which, on the flip side, makes it even more impressive when you see performances just taking out two guys from the hot sheet this past week, Ryan Castellani and Kyle Quantrill, able to survive in those environments. Castellani, especially in Albuquerque, during a weekend series with Tacoma where the ball was really flying out. He pitched six like, scoreless innings. I was going to say, that was, was he in the 23-2 to two game? Uh, he wasn't in that game, but he pitched uh, before in that series. Well, let's, again, let's just give a little shout-out. Also... A guy who disproves what I was just talking about, Zach Gallen is a guy who, you know, it's around the zone and all that. He has a .36 ERA. Griffin Canning's had a great start at the PCL. Um, you know, my, I, Ryan Castellani, as you said, he's been really good. Austin Voth, 
you know, Tyler Beatty so far, which, uh, you know, yeah, a the guy velocity who's... uptick he showed at the end of last year has helped. No, and, and look, it's always possible, right? There always will be guys who can overcome the odds. Even you go back and look at High Desert Lancaster, you know, Brad Penny had a sub three ERA in High Desert. I mean, which is like a sub one ERA in some other. Right. So, so again, it's possible, but I do think we're going to have to really kind of adjust just from an outside perspective what we consider good pitching performances at the AAA level, but especially the PCL. And I'll be curious to see just the long term ramifications of this from an evaluation standpoint and how evaluators adjust. JJ, that's what's going on in AAA. In the majors, one of the flashpoints over the last few weeks has been bat flips. We've seen a number of them increase over the last few years. And what's been fascinating to me, and part of the reason I wanted to wait a week to talk about all mm-hmm. this and let everything cool down, was to just kind of take the long view of this. To me, one of the more fascinating things watching the reaction to the bat flips has been kind of the generational divide. We saw Derek Dietrich kind of stand at the plate for a while, and that got Chris Archer upset. Archer then threw at him. That was the first round of this. Second round of it was Tim Anderson uh, emphatically throwing his bat back to his dugout after a home run off Brad Keller. We saw that escalate. That was kind of chapter two of this most recent bat flip, quote-unquote outrage, if you will. I want to talk about this with you because you and I are different ages, came up watching different eras of baseball, have different opinions on things, and I wanted to just get a sense of where do you stand on all this? Bat flips, playing the game, that energy, that's only going to increase. That's not going away. Where are you on this and just big picture with the context of the game and where we're at as well? I tweeted out last week, I think, my prediction that in 10 years from now, this will all have disappeared. And what I mean by that is is you're going to have bat flips, you're going to have all that, and you're not going to have the reaction that you have now. And the reason I say this is, is that Again, the game moves slowly, but you know, I've been following baseball, I would say intensely for 25 years, and I would say, not that you never saw it 25 years ago, but 25 years ago, the code was much more strictly enforced that, you know, and again, let me make clear, let me throw my bias out there. I thought the code on this has been stupid from when I was a kid. Like, my whole idea is, is that, again, it's not just baseball. Like, if you look at college football, I remember covering college football in the 90s where they passed a rule that essentially, really, their definition was, they said they're not trying to take emotion out of the game, but it was like anything that drew, drew attention to yourself could be a penalty. Like, if you made a sack and then celebrate it, but you didn't celebrate with your teammates, you celebrated by yourself, that could be a 15 yard penalty. And they, you know, anything that could be seen as drawing attention to yourself. And if you've noticed in college football, they still try to enforce that, but we see more emphasis on self. It, and we've seen the NFL go back and forth right, on end zone celebrations. The, the direction is heading in that direction. But the thing that stands out to me with baseball is, is that that code has never been universal around baseball. If you watch a Winter League game, if you watch... The World Baseball Classic. The World Baseball Classic. If you watch baseball in Korea, they have never had this code. Like, you know, if, if you're watching, again, a game from, you know, Liga Dominicana, and a pitcher makes a big strikeout and he yells and pumps his fist, you know, that's just part of the game. When Williams Estadio, you know, bat flip beyond bat flip in a key game, you know, out there, he didn't get drilled the next time. Why? Everyone in that game understands that in this game, that's part of the game. And you know what? It makes the game better. Like, what, what is the, the reason, like, Again, I've heard all the arguments, act like you've done it before, things like that. If you, baseball is a game that having it devoid of emotion does not make the game more enjoyable if you're a fan. I, someone can make an argument, maybe they can try to make an argument the other way to me. I don't see it. I did not see, remember when Jose Fernandez, the late Jose Fernandez, Jose Fernandez was one of the most demonstrative pitchers you'd ever see on the mound. He was really good. The thing about Jose Fernandez was, is that, and again, you see this. Amir Garrett made a great 
you know, tweet recently where he said, if I'm out in the mound and you hit a homer on me, you know, bat flip away. And if I strike you out, I'm going to show emotion too. Well, that's fine. Like, how is the game worse if we basically, the new unwritten rule is you do something when you succeed and I do something when I do. You know, again, I do think that we are moving in that direction. I think it's just a slow move. Now, you know, the thing that with that is, is that, and it is also long-term, it's the direction that the game wants slash needs to go. Let's, you know, the, the demographics of baseball are, it is an, as the average age of a baseball fan is older than pretty much, the NFL is old too, but it's, it's the oldest of the major sports in the U.S. And I don't know another way. Again, I'm in a different generation really than you, but like, I don't know another way to say it. The majority of people who view it that way, I would say are generally older. And so if you say we're going to try to take that emotion out of the game, you are, you are basically aiming it towards people who are on the older scale of your fan base. And you're at the same time probably turning away people on the younger scale. No sport wants to get older. No business wants no to get business older. No business wants to get older. And so from the standpoint of that, like when I say I think it's going to go away in 10 years, I think what you're going to see is, is you're going to see baseball steadily amp up their punishment for the retaliation because they would rather see the emotion than see that stamped out. What do you think? No, I agree. I think there's nothing wrong with celebrating success. I think that it's good for the game, makes the game more enjoyable. I will say not all bat flips are created equal. You know, I think back to Jose Bautista's bat flip after the home run against the Rangers in the playoffs a few years ago. That was great. That was glorious. It was a huge moment. It was a huge swing, home crowd. Was it emphatic? Was it big? Yes. No issues with it. I will say this again. I don't have an issue with Tim Anderson, Derek Dietrich. I would say that I can understand why Chris Archer and Brad Keller did, just in terms of Dietrich standing at the plate as long as he did with that kind of admiring. That would that that goes beyond the bat. He flip. hit that ball into the no, it landed I know, in the water. I know, and we saw. And again, you know what? If I hit the ball into the water, I want to see it end up in the water. And again, I'm not saying he's yeah. wrong. I'm just saying I can see where Chris Archer would be bothered by it. That's all I'm saying. But I will go back and say. Drilling a guy, again. Wait, wait, wait hold on. Let's unpack that. When you say, I can see why he's bothered with that. Again, I'm not saying bothered is one thing. Listen, take a look, pump your fist, run the bases. I can see no, no, from no, the no, pitcher's no, no, no. perspective why standing there for more than three or four seconds seems gratuitous. I, I say I can understand. But when you say understand, you say understand. Okay, so you have added to the anger that you are feeling. I get this. You have added to the anger you are feeling because you just gave up a majestic home run. I get this. Now, anything beyond that, though, like, again, anything other than the next time Derek Dietrich steps up, if you strike him out and you want to basically, you know, pump your fist and stare him down, great. And but I'm anything other that. than that, though, like, it's like you gave up the home run. And again, it does not justify throwing at someone. And to be honest, we talk about the code and standing up for your teammates, or in some cases, you know, get a little bit of payback by drilling a guy in the ribs. To me, it's a lot better. Go in there and strike the guy out with the nastiest curveball you can throw, the best fastball you can throw. That's more rewarding than giving a guy a free base and plucking him in the ribs. So yes, I'm all for that. You know, Chris Archer and Brad Keller and whoever the next pitcher is that gets bat flipped and isn't happy about it, it's much more rewarding to strike that guy out than it is to plunk him in the ribs and give him a free base and in some cases potentially hurt your team's chances of winning depending on the game and the situation. I'm just saying, I understand that there are certain bat flips that are great, they're heat of the moment, they're emotional, and they're just reactions, and there are others that certainly can get a little bit gratuitous. And I see that there is a difference between them, and I can see where pitchers would be upset or frustrated by that. Um, the Tim Anderson one, what was interesting to me was, again, I can see where Brad Keller would be annoyed at that, but you go back the previous year and Tim Anderson had a home run where he didn't do anything wrong, and Salvador Perez took issue with Lord knows what and started a little bit of a fracas over it. So there's a little bit of history there. And again, I can see for that, yes, the Royals were completely overreacted when Sal Perez went at Tim Anderson after that one. 
This one, I can understand where, again, they'd be a little more frustrated and things obviously escalated. But at the end of the day, again, I'm, I, I'm still okay with all of it. I'm just saying I can see where in the heat of the moment, competitive oh. fire, you're frustrated and you don't care for it. I, I, I get that. And what I'm saying is, is what I'm hoping happens. Again, I get it. You give up a home run, you're angry. If you're a batter and you strike out, you're angry. I get all that. But what I'm saying is, is I do hope we get to the point where whether it's gratuitous or not, like we've gotten to this point in the NFL to some extent. Like, I mean, the NFL is a sport where unlike baseball, we talk about beating, but the NFL is a sport that if you feel like that someone, you know, showed you up, it's a sport where you have an opportunity on a regular basis to physically harm the other player. And it is a sport where we have wide receivers holding the football out at the guy chasing them as they cross the line, the goal line. We have a sport where players have choreographed sack dances that they do after sacking a quarterback. It is a sport where we've had guys celebrate over basically the unconscious body of a player who has had his brain completely scrambled. And what we have gotten to, though, in the NFL is that generally there is not, like, overt retaliation unless it's something where it is seen as literally not that you showed a player up, but the retaliation now generally happens when it's like you did something cheap to injure somebody. That's where the policing goes in. And what I'm saying is, is that, again, if you want to be frustrated by it, I get it. And the response to that is, okay, strike the next guy out, and if you want to then respond in kind, I'm fine with that. But again, personally, I think, like, the benches should never clear because a guy stood a little while longer in the batter's box or flipped his bat with a, uh, you know, again, even if the situation, even if the situation, again, and players should have some feel, but even if the situation is you had just hit a homer and you're trailing five to one or seven to two in the ninth inning. Yeah, you shouldn't because you should have more feel than that. But their benches should not clear for that because, again, the reality of it is, is that the great thing about it is, is that no matter who you are, there's a way to get back at it, which is, is I'm going to do better than you next time. Again, I do agree with you that we're going to see this start to normalize. It won't be a controversy as much as it is today, five, ten years from now. Um, again, and I'm for it. I think there's a lot of excitement that gets added. Some of the great moments, you mentioned Jose Fernandez being as demonstrative as he was, both on the mound and sometimes at the plate when he did hit home runs. It was really special to watch. I just will be curious to see where this line moves in terms of, okay, what is going to become acceptable in the terms of what used to irritate a pitcher as being quote-unquote too far, how that line moves as we get further into this, because you're right, this is a trend that's only going to keep increasing. In terms of the actual wins and loss column, what's been fascinating to me has been watching the Yankees. This is a team that has just been absolutely eviscerated by injury, and yet they keep winning. And to me, it just goes back to the depth. We saw them acquire Mike Talkman before the season started in a move that didn't get a lot of attention at the time. Clint Frazier's getting playing time. They went out, they signed J.J. LeMahieu in the offseason. He's been really, really helpful as uh, injuries in the infield have hampered the team. And... The Yankees right now remind me a lot of the Dodgers last year. And you'll remember the Dodgers last year got off to a 16-26 and 26 start. And a lot, they lost Clayton Kershaw, Corey Seager, Justin Turner, Rich Hill, Walker Buehler, Kenta Maeda, Hunjin Ryu, Yasiel Puig, Logan Forsyth, Chase Hutley. All those guys went on the DL in the early going. The Yankees are going through the same thing right now. They're losing guys left and right. But you have to be encouraged with just how well they've managed to stay afloat early in the season with all those guys down. They're gonna come back. I picked the Yankees before the year to win the World Series. And I think you have to feel really, really good about where they are, just given, again, they beat the Angels last night. They're above 500, playing with, in a lot of cases, the JV team. And what they thought a lot of the players in playing in uh, Scranton I mean, with. So it would say, be, it'd be they, the they Scranton Wilkes Berry lineup but, more than the Yankees lineup, and they're winning. Right now, their starting outfield is on the DL. 
I mean, the entire St Stanton, Stanton, Judge, Hicks. I mean, that's your, your corners and your center. Miguel Andahar's out. Pitching staff has lost Luis, Luis Severino. CeCe Sabathia's missed time. I mean, they have their, their starting shortstop and their replacement shortstop are on the IL. Uh, you know, Greg Bird, which, again, Greg Bird being on IL, not shocking. Gary Sanchez on IL. You know, it is crazy. It's crazy. And they're still staying afloat. Luis to Severino, me. like, they are staying afloat. And that is important. Like, because, again... It's very early, but the thing that always stands out is, is it's, it's early, and a great start can disappear pretty quickly. I mean, the reality is, is like, as great as Seattle's been so far, maybe they can keep this up. We saw last year they returned to the pack, and the frightening thing for them is, is again, the Astros are really good. So as incredible as Seattle's start has been, they're a game and a half up on Houston right now. And it's like, man, that's not a lot for having basically played out of your mind. But for all that, like, yeah, again, the, the, the thing that we do see, the thing that is true now that for good and bad is one of the things that you just talked about there is, is that I do believe that depth is easier to have now. Like, again, some of this is they've been proactive. Acquiring Clint Frazier a couple years ago in basically the one sell-off the Yankees have had in a very long time is very advantageous because even though if everyone's healthy, there's no clear spot for Clint Frazier. I mean, he's literally their number five outfielder right now if everyone's healthy. But he's the best number five out. Well, I shouldn't say that. He's one of the better ones. So you know when injuries hit, you're still going to be in good shape potentially. Right. But again, the other part of this is, though, is that you also look at them and you say, at a modest cost, they can go out. And again, Tulo, again, Tulo at this point in his career is not the Troy Tulowitzki that we remember. But at a modest cost, they could go out and get a replacement, you know, shortstop. At a very modest cost. Mike Toshman was a guy. Cost them Philip Deal. Right. It's, it is a, a low-cost acquisition. DJ LeMayhew, who's been a very productive player for a long time, is a, you know, a relatively... Low cost. Luke Voigt was a low cost acquisition last year. They've but done again, an excellent job at finding guys that will be productive well, big leaders for them at very low cost. I know cost. they just released him, but, you know, because he had an opt out, I believe, yesterday. But Gio Gonzalez, they could just go out and say, here's this guy who's had been an extremely durable starter at the big league level for much of the past more than decade. And they could just basically stash him on their AAA roster. Now, again, they're not the only team doing this. But I, would I would argue they're the team that's done it best. And part of that is the resources they have, but they have done a tremendous job at finding I would say the, the I would say the Dodgers have done it best. I was referring to in the context of what they've done this year and this past offseason. Yes, long term, there's no question what the Dodgers have been able to do, finding guys for low-cost acquisitions, Max Muncy, Chris but, Taylor. There's absolutely no question. But just in the, in the context of say this past offseason to now, even maybe going back to starting last July with the Luke Voigt acquisition, I would say over the last seven, eight months, the Yankees have been prolific at this, and it's really impressive to watch Brian Cashman and, and his staff go to work. The other thing I would say with that, though, is, is that what the Dodgers have done really well is it's not just low-cost acquisitions, but what it is, though, is, is that, again, we talk about this depth, it's the spreading of risk that actually ends up making your risk. You have... If you diversify your portfolio, like, again, I'm not, I'm not providing investment advice here in any way, but what the Dodgers have done such a good job of, for one, beyond the fact that their player development and their big league development is insane, because when we talk about Max Muncy and Justin Turner, and we could do almost a guy a year who basically is free talent, who then turns into a star with the Dodgers. That's something that most teams have not proven capable of doing. But the other thing is, is that what they've been able to do also is, is they acquire a guy like Rich Hill. And they're, with Rich Hill, they're not focused on, okay, Rich Hill, we're counting on him to be our number three starter, we're counting, you know, whatever. They're looking at it and they go into it and they're saying, okay, we've got Rich Hill and we've got, a couple years ago, Scott Kasmer, we got these four guys. And if any of them is, plays at their peak, we're going to get massive return. But if all these guys are hurt at times in the year, 
we have the depth, we have the portfolio that we can handle that. And we'd rather. And it's critical to have, particularly as we see pitcher injuries rise over the last few years, we've talked about this ad nauseum, having a five-man starting rotation isn't enough. You need to have seven guys you would trust to really give you a lot of starts, and you need to count on 11 to 12 guys making at least a couple starts for you every single year. And a lot of times you can, that can be the difference. If you don't have good starters 7 through 11, and all of a sudden they're responsible for making 20, 25 starts a year for you, that can be the difference between winning the division but, and finishing in third place. But let me give you another example, because who's gotten a team that's gotten a lot of criticism over last year, or last offseason, and understandably because they had to reduce payroll and all. But when we talk about the ease of finding depth, so the Cleveland Indians, you know, do, did not go out. They, they went into the season with clear holes on their big league roster. But something they did with that is, is that, like, I was watching a AAA Columbus game early in the season. And the top of their lineup was, like, big league, big league, big league, big league. It's, it was Carlos Gonzalez and Cameron Mabin and Ryan Flaherty and... You know, again, you've got rehabbing guys like, I mean, Kipnis has been there and Lindor has been there briefly, you know, but you, you've had all these guys. I mean, Tim Fedorowicz, who's basically been like a triple-A catcher for five, six, seven years. You know, my point, though, is it's like you don't expect to see an outfield, a triple-A outfield, and it's like Carlos Gonzalez and Cameron Mabin, on, you know, in the outfield together. Now, again, those are, the, the way I would put it is, is that, and I know they've, you know, I think cargo's now up, I think, in, in Cleveland, if I remember right. But the point of that is, is that Carlos Gonzalez has had some pretty rough stretches. And, you know, like he's in recent years where he has not been the player that, you know, that he's shown in his best. But, but you, at the same time, the upside of a, of, a, of a cargo signing is much higher than the upside of I'm signing this six-year minor league free agent. And again, the, the, more, the overarching point of this is, is as teams get so hesitant to sign players, you know, who have a three at the start of their age to any kind of contract, the other thing that that does mean is, is that acquiring depth, if you, sign, if you sign Carlos Gonzalez, you're the Indians, and you signed him to a three-year, $30 million deal, then you are taking on a lot of risk that he may not live up to that contract. When you sign Carlos Gonzalez to a modest deal that includes, basically, he's starting the season in AAA, if he plays well, you've got all kind of upside. And if he plays poorly, then you have almost no downside. And so what I'm saying is, is I do think depth has been easier to acquire now than it was five, 10 years ago, because as veteran players get devalued, again, like, Brandon Phillips is not a great player at this point, you know, last year. But the fact that Brandon Phillips spent most of the year at AAA for, you know, meant that you, you had this player who had acres of experience who, again, the upside on that is just, it's, it's a low cost, low risk. But again, the chances of him being still a above average major leaguer are very small. But there is that chance. He has that ability potentially still in him. And it's just low cost to acquire these guys now. The Yankees have done a great job of it. As such, we've talked about they're 12 and 10. If they can just stay afloat with what they have, when the big guns come back, they're going to be in great, great position. Uh, obviously, the Rays are off to a great start. Toronto's hanging in there. Uh, Boston, you know, is not going to be a sub-500 team for most of the years. So the ALE should definitely tick up and continue to be competitive as expected. JJ, the last thing I want to hit on with you is some of the fast starts. Peter Alonzo has been, I should say Pete Alonzo, he's now mm -hmm. Pete, uh, has been off to a fantastic start. Dan Vogelbach as well. I wrote about this in 3-Up, three 3-Down three last week that we see a lot that the big-bodied, first-base, DH-only type of guy generally gets denigrated within the scouting community. Uh, I've talked to evaluators who said they thought Pete Alonzo was an organizational guy in college, and I even through talking to PCL managers last year, there were a lot of things, a lot of guys saying, you know, I just, I don't see it working at the big league level. I talked to evaluators at AAA and in the Arizona Fall League, and again, this spring training when he was raking, he told me, 
I have him as a 40 grade, 45 grade player, which is a bench player slash second division starter platoon type. I mean, even while he continued to match, there was still a sense that, you know, I just, I don't believe it's going to click at the major league level. And again, he's, it's early. There will be a time where he's going to have to make an adjustment. Pitchers are going to get more familiar with him. He's going to start seeing different pitches and have to make a counter adjustment. That's true of all young players and all rookies. We at BA still had Peter Alonso as a top 50 prospect in baseball because we saw the exit velocity, we saw the power, and we've seen it start to work progressively more and more in recent years. How much, when you have such a, a skepticism among evaluators, but you see the performance at the major league level, and we have some data to back it up, how much do you think is sustainable and where does a career like this go, whether it's Alonzo, whether it's Dan Vogelbach, all these kind of big-bodied first-base DH types that, for all the reasons stated, have, have never really been the favorites of, of traditional evaluators? That's the, the million-dollar question I don't have a great answer for because some of these guys, like, again, like if you talk about those two guys, I have a much higher confidence level in, in Alonzo than, than Vogelbach. Like, Correct. Um, one was a top 50 prospect in the majors coming up. One was not. But, um, but you know, again. I, I feel safe saying Pete Alonso will not hit 325 with, oh, a, sure. with an 1,100 OPS. So there will be some come down. But yes, he's not going to be, you know. He's not going to be Albert Pujols in his prime. I think we can say but that. But at the same time, the thing that stood out with Alonso was the concerns you often have with these kind of guys. What we saw with Alonso is is over the last few years is Alonzo catches up to premium velocity. That's very important. Like, Alonzo has shown he can catch up to premium velocity. We saw it at the Futures game where he basically... Uh, we saw it again in the Fall Stars game. Fall it was Stars. interesting because when I talked to evaluators, I said, you know, I see him beating up on a lot of 88 to 92. They were concerned he was beating up on vanilla stuff. But I think that was probably just because that's all he was facing. And when he did face good stuff, he was getting to it. And I think that is an important distinction to make. The guys who, oh, they're putting up big numbers against vanilla stuff. And when they see good stuff, they're not getting it. Alonzo was beating up on a lot of vanilla stuff last year. But when he did have to face the premium stuff, he got to it. But So you're seeing that. And that's, to me, very important. Because, again, like one of the knocks that you hear is... When I say premium stuff, I mean premium velocity, I should yeah. say. But, pre but that is something, right? It's you huge. have to show it's huge. If you, you can't hit a major league fastball, it's 95 plus, then you are going to have real trouble in the major leagues now because every single team come the seventh inning is probably going to bring someone out who can locate 95 plus. And so, again, and a lot of teams are going to do that. You're going to see that in the first through fifth innings as well. But, but that was key. You know, Nate Lowe fits in this, you know, discussion. Like, again, the same kind of knocks. Like, it's not a great body. He's not very good defensively at first base, all these things. But Nate Lowe has shown that he can, you know, catch up to velocity. And I do think that the game is, you know, one thing that being able to quantify more things has allowed the game to do is, is a guy like that probably gets a little bit more of a shot now because, you know, you now get that opportunity. Like if you're the Mets, you have data on every, basically every at-bat of Peter Alonso, Pete Alonso's career as, as a Met, pretty much. I'm sure there's some coding error, you know, like we had, oh, Trackman was down for this at-bat. Oh, he was on this field at this point that didn't, you know, but overall, and so, a couple of clicks, you can say, this is what he's done against premium velocity. Oh, he's been fine. Man, these exit velos are really good. What I'm saying is, is that I do think a guy like that gets more opportunity now because the things that are legitimate concerns, like again, Pete Alonso kept hearing, your defense isn't great at first base. His defense still isn't great at first base. But although, he, by the way, the other thing that... The other thing he that improved you, it. He has improved it. And the other thing that you see with him that also does stand out is, you know, he's a better, he is a better athlete than we give him credit for. And I say that, what I mean by that is, is that, again, things you could quantify now. I'm not saying he's a burner, because no one would ever say with Pete Alonso, oh, Pete Alonso, that speedster that we see. However, if I told you that Pete Alonso's gotten up to 28 
feet per second sprint speed score, that's above average. Again, I'm not saying even he's even an above average runner. But the idea that he can get to above average underway when you talk to evaluators who are eyeing it, you put you had 20 and 30 grade speed on him. Again, the things we can quantify, and I feel like speed has been the number one thing that when we talk to evaluators across the game, and this goes for a lot of different types of players, it's been the hardest thing to get accurate times on because they show up in the majors, and once it's quantified with, with uh, sprint speed, all of a sudden, a lot of them are a lot faster. Well, we saw this happen with Tyler O'Neill. We saw it with Franchi Cordero. I got one run grade on these guys, and as soon as they get to the majors and you're quantifying it, oh, man, they're at least a grade faster, if not right, two Right, because, sometimes. again, the, the thing about it is, is, and this is a tough part of it, is, is that if you're evaluating and you're getting, again, just the nature of it, because we go to a game. Like, if you're a scout and you go to a game or a series, like they go to a series, but if you see a guy over five games, you might get, a lot of times, two or three good run times on a guy over the course of five games. Because if it's a long fly ball and he's turning at first, you're not getting a good time. The only times you're really getting a good time in those situations. If he hits is, a ground ball. He's a ground ball. And he's actually trying to beat it and out. And he's running it out. You're going to get your good time. But, but even to give an example on that, because we have access to some things, like... Pete Alonso has had a 4-4 home to first time on a single where, not jailbreak, where he hit, swung, hit the ball, and took off. And he's also had, you know, a number of balls where, you know, 4-5-2, 4-5-A, 4-6-1, 4-7. So that's the range that he has, you know. So... And there are a lot more four sevens on here than there are four fours. And so what that means is, if you saw Pete Alonso for 10 games, again, this comes down to like, okay, the average versus the best. If you saw him for 10 games, you might have never seen him turn in better than a four, six, five, home to first. That's how you judge speed. But if you saw him at his absolute best, where everything like he's fast out of the box, and the swing helped him kind of move towards, you might see four, four, five. Well, that's, that's grades difference of speed, which is a tough thing about evaluations. You know, again, and we don't have the, the, the track man stat, the stat cast portion of that does not exist yet at the minor league level to fully, uh, to fully measure that. There's no question. It's going to be interesting to see how he continues. Again, there's been a lot of great rookie starts. Pete Alonso won, Fernando Tatis Jr. as well. Uh, that NL Rookie of the Year race all of a sudden looks pretty exciting. Again, it's April. There will be adjustments pitchers make against these guys. They're going to have to make counter adjustments. We'll see how it all shakes out. JJ, I do want to wrap up. We talked before the year, and the Tampa Bay Rays, we mentioned you were on board with them. I was more of a skeptic. They've been really, really good this year. And I think one of the things that I didn't get a chance to articulate on the preseason podcast, I mentioned, you know, I had some questions about their infield, but they put together a fantastic outfield. I wrote about that in the uh, Baseball America season preview. But you have to tip your cap to their pro scouting department in particular uh, in terms of what they've done with acquiring pitchers, both, I should say, the amateur and pro. They've had a lot of guys that are homegrown on the international side. They've obviously developed, drafted and developed Blake Snell. Charlie Morton was a great signing. We've seen the Rays pitching staff be the best in baseball to date in terms of ERA. There's a lot of depth, and we've started to see them. Look, the opener's still a thing, but Yanni Chirinos, they've used in a traditional starter's role. Tyler Glass now, they've used in a traditional starter's role. Blake Snell, before he got hurt, was using a traditional starter's role. Charlie Morton, they were using a traditional starter's role. And what I think you have to give the Rays credit for is how flexible they are. They went to the opener last year because all their injuries hit them. Now they have four decent, healthy arms. Again, they're still using it one out of every five. But all of a sudden, they don't have to go to it as much. And that is one area I think it's important to highlight the Rays here. They've done a really good job being flexible. They're not stubborn. They're not rigid. They're open to doing different things based on the personnel available to them. And I think in all organizations, pick whatever business you want to pick, legal, finance, whatever. The ability to be flexible and adaptable is so critical. I just wanted to at least point out the Rays deserve a lot of credit for being as adaptable as they need to be to be successful. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that stands out with them to me is, is that this is a team that when we talk about depth, there's a different, their depth is from a different way. But again, they do an incredible job of development, I really think. Like, not just 
you know, the guys get better with them. The day that they traded for Tyler Glasnow, I was like, hmm, wouldn't shock me if Tyler Glasnow got better with them. The day they traded for, traded for Yandy Diaz, you're like, and again, the Indians are not like this, you know, they're not, a, they're not a regressive organization no, but, but, in any way. Yes. But you look at it and you go, okay, I think that they think they can get something out of Yandy Diaz that he hasn't gotten yet. And so far, they have. Um, they, they, when you look at it... Well, that's, that's the classic for Let's find someone who hits baseballs very, very hard and does so very, very frequently and see if we can just make a tweak to get those balls over the fence. That, to me, is the type of player you do go out and acquire. And it was a great acquisition and one I liked but, when they made it. But the other point I would make, though, is, is that when we talk about the depth with them, we're talking about Nate Lowe's sitting at AAA, and I wrote about this on Sunday. Yeah, and he, I think he's. I think he will. When the when the year is over, I think you will say he has had more big league at bats and more value this year to their big league club than G Man Choi. Nothing against G Man, but you know I, I think that that's going to happen. And that's an example of a guy, frankly, did not look like the part of an everyday big leaguer to say the least when he was in the Mariner system as a minor leaguer, and then when he did get up with the Angels. Rule five pick. He had a, mo a couple of moments with the Brewers, but yes, they have made him. He has been better for them than a lot of people perceived was possible in previous years, and that is a credit to them. But what I'm saying is, you got that. You're going to get again. Maybe you know Honeywell. Brent Honeywell's had a setback, but maybe you get Brent Honeywell back at some point this or year. Or it's Anthony Bonda, or you know Jake Faria is back down AAA. There's depth there, and there, guys they can pull up. Right, and then you say, okay, and then they've got these guys. Jose De Leon still around. And then you've got these guys coming. You know, before at some point, you're like, okay, well, you know, Jesus Sanchez could be at AAA at some point this year, and then you have Brendan McKay could be, you know, pitching in the big league at some point this year. Again, they, they have depth of a prospect nature, but. It's good depth. And that's part of what's going to make the ALE so fascinating when the Yankees get healthy, when the Red Sox kind of click into gear. And uh, again, the Blue Jays are staying decently competitive in the early going. We know Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s call-up is only uh, a few weeks away, hopefully at least, maybe just a few days Hours, away. I would wish. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's not going to be long, and it'll be a lot of fun. JJ, thanks for uh, helping wrap up the first over almost a month through the Major League season. Opening day was March 28th. Today is April 23rd. Crazy that it's uh, so much has passed already, but it's been a lot of fun. There's a lot more to come. There is. Thank you again, everyone, for listening to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a shout. Uh, you can on iTunes, give us a review. You can reach me on Twitter, at Kyle A. Glazer. JJ is uh, at JJCoop36. Let us know uh, if there's anything else uh, you want to hear or see on the BA podcast. Till then, we look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.